Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We wish you luck is an exhilarating novel about a group of students who take revenge on a wunderkind professor, sorry, um, after she destroys one of their own. A story of collective drive uh, uh, to create, sabotage, and ultimately to love. Love, death, revenge. These age-old tropes come to life as the semesters unfold. Now, I'm, I'm not spoiling it. I'm not trying to, no, like, you no know. No, no spoilers. I'm leaving that to the author to take care of, you know, the, <laughs> telling the story. Um, these age-old tropes come to life as the semesters unfold. This is the story of three brilliant grad students, Hannah, Leslie, and Jimmy. Um, uh, this is the story these three brilliant grad students have woven together, a story of friendship and passion, of competition and envy, of creativity as life and death. Lydia Kiesling calls We Wish You Luck a seductive and tightly controlled literary revenge story. With a dash of the secret history, We Wish You Luck is a wonderful hypnotic novel about craft, narrative, and the stakes of literary production. And this next one I really like because, anyway. Um, Hela Alyan writes uh, that it's rare to describe a book about writing as addictive, but that's exactly what Zancan has done here. And personally, I like books about writing, too. And, uh, you know, music about music, films about films. Um, okay, no one cares. Um, Caroline Zancan is the author of the novel Local Girls. She is a graduate of Kenyon College and holds an MFA from the Bennington Writing, Writing Seminars. A senior editor at Henry Holt, she lives in Brooklyn with her husband and their children. Asia Gable's debut novel, The Ensemble, The Ensemble, was released by Riverhead, the ensemble, in 2018. Her fiction has appeared in New England Review, Kenyon Review, Bomb, and elsewhere. She was a 2012-2013 fellow in fiction at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown and holds a PhD from the University of Houston. Now, we are very excited to have these two wildly talented authors with us today. Please join me in welcoming Caroline Zancan and Asia Gable. start by do it. with a little reading I'm all gonna, right I'm gonna borrow a chair because there's no um, do you want me to get in one of those two so that we don't have a weird height <laughs> differential no 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 I'm gonna do this oh, oh, yeah oh, okay. that's just that gonna you know we're all friends here so yeah 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 I don't have the bar <laughs> okay I'll just get right into it and start with the reading, you guys. Um, so I don't think there's that much you need to know about the book to understand what's happening in this. Um, this takes, takes place in an MFA program, and um, when something terrible happens in the program, two, two of the students there um, kind of decide to go rogue and write it themselves rather than going through official channels. Um, and this is their kind of infamous meeting. This is the first time uh, they ever met. And, and the student body becomes obsessed with them in general when they, after their revenge starts snowballing. Um, and the way they met becomes kind of uh, infamous. There was a long-standing debate among fielding students on whether a Republican could create great art. 
And it is no coincidence that the people who said they could are people who had been in Professor Pearl's class. Not because he had professed affiliation with any political party or candidate, or even because of that gun he surely owned, even if it wasn't in his photo, but because he had the air of a small town mayor or sheriff. Not in a power-hungry way, but in the sense that he believed people took care of their own and didn't need any larger, more formal mandate to do so. People who swept in from far away generally only bought trouble. You got the sense he didn't like suits. If the apocalypse hit, you'd want him around. Pearl had been married when his book was published to an equally celebrated novelist named Joan Pasquale, who, unlike her husband, kept writing after her first success. She had been a finalist for the National Book Award twice, once for her debut novel and once for a collection of essays about a random group of women who happened to get their chemotherapy at the same time and place and tracked the members of the group long after their treatments. Though she had lost both times, her almost maniacal following couldn't have loved her more if she had won. Even at the peak of their combined fame, the couple had apparently been wary of any sort of exposure or literary celebrity. The one interview we could find with either of them was a joint profile life had done the year after Cactus and Dust came out. In the picture we all remember most vividly, one as iconic as his author photo, Pearl looks up at the camera from a mahogany desk in front of which a four-year-old girl with enviably shaggy locks and the lingering effects of a late afternoon nap sits playing. The couple divorced a year later, after which Joan and their daughter relocated to California. We couldn't find any evidence that Professor Pearl kept in touch with either woman. His office walls were notoriously bare of personal photos of any sort, but this seemed out of character for him, and we wanted all of our characters consistent back then, both on the page and in life, not having yet considered that this was not only uninteresting, it was inaccurate. We know better now, though. Good men falter all the time. While the details of Pearl's personal life and the status of his second novel were in dispute, we could all agree that he was not the kind of person you disrespected by whispering to someone else while he was addressing the group, which is why what Leslie did on the first day of workshop was even more surprising than if she had done it in any other professor's classroom. She and Hannah were the only two first years in the class. Like most of us first years, unfamiliar with the campus and hoping to make a good first impression, Hannah had arrived at Sunset Cottage 10 minutes early. Leslie was three and a half minutes late, and not because she was lost. She pulled her hot pink earbuds out of her ears only after she had shut the door behind her, so everyone in the room got a few chords of Robin's demand that her new boyfriend call his girlfriend. The circle of students around the long table in front of her was small enough to appear informal, but the look her classmates gave her when they turned made it clear just how sacred they considered the ritual she was interrupting. Sorry, she said in a way that insulted the word. The look Professor Pearl gave her was direct but empty at once, a look as meaningless as her sorry. Sit, he said. And she did, but not in the chair he had nodded to, which was the one closest to the door. She directed her winking hips toward the table's only other empty chair, right next to Hannah, which she had to pass most of the circle to get to. Four students had to scoot their chairs forward to make enough room for her to pass. The collective squeal of metal chairs on the linoleum floor was more offensive than even the robin, but still he did not kick her out. He had already diverted his attention back to the rest of the class by the time he slid a copy of the one-page syllabus to her across the table, the graceful glide of his forearm totally divorced from the rest of his body. It finished its arc right as she finally landed in the chair. One of the few ways in which Professor Pearl's workshop did not depart from those in adjacent classrooms was the first day agenda. Even he used it as a throwaway day, dispensing the rules under which the workshop would be conducted and determining the order in which students would be workshopped. It was a soggy curriculum better suited for the first day of high school English, usually capped by the professor handing out a page or two of prose that was universally understood to be perfect. 
It was academic small talk, and Leslie had little patience for small talk of any sort. To be fair, Professor Pearl did try to curtail the condescension implicit in so basic a class by not insisting all the students go around the room reading a paragraph of his selection aloud. Instead, he had everyone take a Xerox copy of Alice Munro's Fitz to read quietly to themselves. Most of the other students in the class were still on the first page when Leslie bent over and unzipped her backpack to retrieve a pencil case. She didn't even have the sense to be ginger in her unzipping or her case opening. She inspected half, each of the half dozen colored pencils she took out of the case before lining them up in front of her. She didn't appear to put the colors in any particular order, but she did stop to make sure they were laid out evenly so that their admirably pointy tips formed a perfect line before she picked up the green pencil closest to her. Once she began working, she stopped only to change colors, so focused on her creation that she didn't look up to note which color she was picking up in favor of the one she had just discarded, making everyone think there might have been some premeditation to the order she had put them in after all. With each new letter, she drew the attention of more of the students in the room. By the time she got to the second N, everyone had abandoned the story, their heads up in some mix of curiosity and outrage, including Professor Pearl's. That Leslie had created a spectacle sufficient enough to distract from the reading would mean more to you if you'd ever read Fitz. Are you not going to read the story? Professor Pearl asked, more amused than we would have been. I think you'll like it. It's one of her best. Yeah, I know, Leslie said, pausing only briefly in her exchange of a blue pencil for an orange one. I've already read it. I've read all of her selected stories. For a second or two, the only sound in the room was a scratch of paper, a pencil on recycled paper. Well, said Professor Pearl, leaning back on two chair legs, still considering how to proceed even as he spoke, I suppose that makes sense. Just try to keep it down, all right? Leslie nodded, but wasn't any less rigorous in whatever she was doing with the orange pencil. The students in the class who liked to see other people get in trouble exchanged what the fuck looks. But most people who know Professor Pearl wouldn't be surprised. He was a man of logic, and Leslie's was a logical explanation. He didn't believe in wasting time or doing something just for the sake of doing it, like rereading a familiar story just because someone told you to. The students closest to Leslie had made out the six letters in Hannah's name, from which several stars were now shooting against a plaid backdrop, just before Leslie ripped her creation from the corner of the syllabus sheet she had written it on. She tried to be coy, her smile was small, but her manic, childish excitement was unmistakable. She slid the scrap of paper over to Hannah, who was the only person in the classroom still reading at that point, offering her friendship the only way she knew how, by trying to startle or scare or impress her intended into it. Instead of being impressed or flattered or nervously cowering into her seat, hoping not to get blamed for this further interruption, since her name is now at the center of it, Hannah turned to Leslie, with her entire upper body, not just her head, and said, in a voice that wasn't loud but wasn't entirely a whisper either, you're being rude. Without giving Leslie or anyone else a chance to react, she turned back to the page in front of her and the story even Leslie couldn't distract her from. After that, Leslie was completely in love, the kind of absolute, all-consuming love that distracts you from the tenets of life as basic as three meals a day and conquers even the bleakest, most devastating strands of loneliness, which was a good thing because even before Hannah chastised Leslie, the eight other students in the class had marked Leslie as someone to be wary of and promised themselves they'd avoid starting up with her the sort of instant close friendship that happens only at summer camps, freshman year of college, rehab, and low residency MFA programs. What the other people in the workshop didn't know and couldn't tell the rest of us when they recounted the story later was that Leslie hadn't chosen Hannah at random. 
She hadn't written out Hannah's name and her too big childish scrawl because she liked Hannah's blazer or the bad spellers must untie sweatshirt she was wearing underneath it. So dorky, it was almost cool. She did it because she loved that first story Hannah had sent to the class, the way she loved very few things, truly and purely, without satirical comment or a joke to distance herself from it. She had read it long before she arrived on campus and several times since. She had reread it just that morning. It was part of why she had been late and would read it again before the story was workshopped. She loved it the way you can love only a certain number of arrangements of words across the span of a life. If we had known this then, we might not have been so quick to judge, and the rest of the students in the workshop might not have told everyone else what happened quite as quickly as they did or in quite such condescending terms. Because we had all loved something, some poem or passage or cluster of words, as much as Leslie loved Hannah's story. It was the reason we were all there. beautiful um this book is so beautiful and it's one of those weird combinations of books that happen to be like both juicy and beautiful you know <laughs> like really fun to read and also um lands on moments like you just did um that kind of identify like what why writers write and why readers read and why why we love books um I wonder that that feels like a I, that can't have be that can't have been what you started out with when you s first conceived this book. So right because I'm, it seems really lofty. So I'm wondering like when did that when was it the book born for you? When I first stepped foot on Bennington's campus, I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to write about this place. My two two of my closest friends from Bennington are here. And they had to listen to me talk all four residencies about how I was going to write my Bennington book. And they were like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep. Um, and anytime anything of any note, you know, sometimes writers can be boring. So a lot of times nothing juicy happened. But anytime anything happened, I'd be like, guys, let's go in the book. And then I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> we can't wait for this book. Um, so it's just the kind of place that, you know, some of the greatest writers in the world have passed through there. Um, I mean, I guess you can't really say Brett Easton Ellis is one of the greatest writers anymore. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Donna Tartt, Shirley Jackson, there are all these these big people, and there are all these big people on the, on the faculty that pass through because the thing with a low residency program is you only have to commit to 10 days uh, a term. So you get really big names like Amy Hempel, and James Wood was always coming to give lectures. Um, you know, Jeff Dyer, uh, Joanne Beard, they were all people who showed up on campus while we were there. Um, so it's got, it's got that kind of history to it, but it's also just the most haunted place I've ever been. Um, I actually was just there for the January residency and I kept freaking out because I was in this beautiful glass cube for like faculty housing out in the middle of this desolate field and it was like totally exposed and I was like, this is how I die. Um, <laughs> this is the start of a dateline. Um, there was like a thump outside the glass. Um, it's shocking that I didn't make uh, Ben drive up and rescue me. Um, so, so it's a place that begs to be written about. So it was more yeah. the place that I yeah. that kind of captured my heart and my spirit and my attention. Yeah. Uh, and then I wrote another book in between because it, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to say about this place yet. I just knew that I wanted to to set something here. You wrote, you had this book, and then you mm -hmm. wrote and published a different book before you went out with this. So book. So I started at Bennington in 2011, and that's when I started talking about this book. Um, and then my last term at Bennington, I started Local Girls, mm -hmm. which was just a little bit more straightforward. It's essentially a bar conversation. 
um, which, you know, it's just one long stretch of dialogue with some history interspersed, which, so it was just a little bit, you know, yeah. once it started rolling, there's one thing I know about, it's bar conversation. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, I could do this in yeah. my sleep. Um, but the, you know, this, this just, it was, uh, it's not a more complicated story necessarily, but I, I came to it from more angles, I think here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask about that sense of place because I've never been to Bennington, but I have been to the East Coast <laughs> and been to college campuses, and um, and I don't know if it's such a um, requirement of campus novels. Although reading this, I thought, oh, it must be because they all seem to have these like places factor so um, interestingly and importantly in here. There's always fields where people could be having sex or could be breaking up or like gar empty garden. The empty garden was a really interesting place. Um, sort of like where old old architecture meets these like young kids every year sort of in their uh, or, or not even young kids but people who are in that stage of life where they're trying to discover who they are or what kind of person they could be um is that place really like can you map this back onto Bennington and how did you think of place when you were writing this well it's funny I knew I wasn't gonna be able to call it Bennington because some very dark things happen in the book and to pin that on Bennington would be unfair because yeah. um, it's a lovely community where teachers don't go about uh, committing plagiarism and, and driving students to desperate lanes um, so <laughs> But I, I felt happy that I was going to have to change the name because I'm terrible with geography and, like, and, you know, names of buildings. So I was like, I can, you know, this yeah. building can be next to that building. And I don't have to keep track of north versus south. It was almost like I made it Bennington but then didn't have to fact check the geography and the layouts and all that. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, let's call it another school. Yeah. Um, so it's funny, like, Sunset Cottage is in there, which is my undergrad, um, our English cottage there. So it's kind of like, a, you know, a mix of... Um, of, of details, but mostly it's just, I think anyone who reads this and has been to Bennington um, would, would be know. Able to would know. That yeah. Um, do you think that that's a, uh, that's like, that's a common thing in campus novels is to have these like places that feel haunted, but also like maybe give birth to new like lives as well? Because yeah. it felt like, like that was also in, um, like secret history and yeah. Well, secret history is also Bennington. Yeah, right. Um, and that I think was even closer to campus. They yeah. were all, I mean, like more true to, um, you know. Yeah. She got the geographical details right. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, Donna Tart's better at geography than I am, <laughs> among other things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would yeah. say, uh, yeah, I also do think it's common in campus novels. Also, you know, you're talking about these campuses um, in the East Coast. I just feel like it's the oldest part of our country, right? Yeah. So it's got the most. Yeah history and so when you you know the more lives that have lived in you know been yeah. lived in a place and the more layers you have to any one place I do think it kind of yeah um, if you're prone to creak in the night and mm -hmm. and thinking it's something more than a creek then yeah. you know these places are certainly will speak to you I yeah think. that's why I won't apply to Yado, even though it may not <laughs> accept me. I feel like I've definitely heard it's haunted and I can't It could do be it. a happy ghost. It could be a ghost that would make your, that might improve your writing. You yeah, never know. Yeah. They don't have to listen to that thing, right? Um, so for those of you maybe who don't know, there is a sort of sub-genre of literary fiction called campus novels. Um, and I was read what you had written in electric literature about, you know, sort of, I think you ranked like 10 or seven best campus novels and you put on there Zadie Smith's On Beauty, which is 
one of my favorite books and Thank something you. I use to to guide my the writing of my first novel. And I, I, I it's interesting. I never thought of that book as a campus <laughs> novel, but it absolutely is. Um, I wonder what books you use. Did you stick to campus novels when you were writing this to sort of inspire you, or did you I think a other bigger things? inspiration was just creepy novels that weren't necessarily um, plot driven, or you know. I mean, there, I like to think there's a plot here, but it's more interested, I think, with this community of people and why they're writing yeah. and why why certain people are drawn to to this kind of impossible, thankless pursuit. Um, yeah. uh, but I like that kind of a lot of a lot of Amazon reviewers or Goodreads reviewers are calling it a slow burn. Some of them in a nice way, some of them in a mean way. <laughs> slow burn's not for everybody. <laughs> Um, but I, I think more than campus novels being an inspiration, I would say that the s other slow burn books That's are an so inspiration. interesting because it's not. Like, I can see why they're saying that because, like, the section you read, like, it's so, um, it, it, you slow down what you're looking at and describing so much that it's, but it fills it with so much tension because, like, is she, which, what color pencil is she going to pick up? Like, how does Professor Pearl lean back in his chair? That, um, that it feels full of tension, but it is, the time is very slowed down. But the, the <laughs> movement between those moments is, 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 is quick, right? Like, you're going from intense moment to intense moment. Oh, um, thank you. So what kind of books then, which books did you read or were sort of I need guiding to posts? Think. I mean, I'm, a, I'm hesitant to say that because my inspirations are like some of the best books ever written <laughs> and I don't at all want to com like compare yeah. myself to them. But as far as books where, you know, you know right away what is going to happen up front and yeah. you're kind of like, why am I still reading? But you're reading it in one sitting. Um, so just to be a real dork, I did my senior thesis at, uh, at Bennington on Jeffrey Eugenides, The Virgin Suicides, and that's mm -hmm. a great example. Like, you know from the first paragraph, they all kill themselves. Yeah. Um, and yet you're reading to find out what, yeah. you know, like I think that's, that's a really good example of a slow burn book. Um, again, I know I've already talked about Donna Tart ad nauseum, but um, again, like that's a book where yeah. a lot happens, but you're also like spending a lot of times in fields with these guys and like in the creek and like as they're running around in their white dresses in the fields. Um, and I was like there for all of it, yeah. even the parts that didn't speak to the story. Yeah. Oh, yes. Thank you. What is um, my husband here in the oh. pink shirt. Um, I, t I make him listen to all my thoughts on books as I'm reading them, so it's fair that he chimes in. Um, <laughs> the Comfort of Strangers is this great novel by Ian McEwen, who, it's funny, it would have been a horror novel even if the last 10 pages don't happen. So I get to like 10 pages before the end of the book, and I'm like, Ian McEwen has written oh, the most chilling, horrifying novel I've ever read, and nobody dies. <laughs> and then the last 10 pages are incredibly gruesome and gory, and people do die. I'm like, oh, no, OK, that's what a horror novel is. But it would have been a horror novel even if that had not happened. Um, and so that was an interesting thing to think about, like, why were the hackles on the back of my neck? Um, you know, why, were, why was that happening before this very yeah. gruesome double murder? Spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Um, I'm going to ask you something that you probably have answered a million times already, but, um, and those, for those of you who haven't read the book already, um, it's told in the plural first person, the mm -hmm. collective we is, was there a better term for that? No, yeah. I, no those no, are the no, terms no. we use, but, um, like the virgin suicides, um, which I find to be so difficult to do myself and which you did 
you manage because you sort of have to explain how you're describing the thing that you're describing without like who saw it and when and how it got communicated to everybody else. Um, but you do it so expertly here that it doesn't feel at all, you don't even notice it um, that you're explaining those parts. But um, I wondered, I, I thought it was really the perfect perspective for a book like this that is about art and artists and seeing and looking. And I wondered um, how you came to that perspective. So two of my all-time favorite books are both told in the communal way, Jeffrey Eugenides, The Virgin Suicides, and also Joshua Ferris's Then We Came to the oh, End, yeah. I always loved. But I always kind of avoided that perspective because I was like, I don't want to be derivative and do it just because, you know, I, I felt like, I think any time you're using a, a different perspective um, than just either first person um, singular or third person singular, I mean, there should be a really good reason for it that you should be trying, you know, there should be something specific you're trying to get out of it. So it doesn't, otherwise it usually ends up feeling like a gimmick, I find, yeah. you know, that's, everyone has their own rules. Um, and I felt like this really was the only way I could tell the story because the idea is that all of it's the people narrating this make up one class of an MFA program and they all want to be telling stories and they all want to, um, they all want to be, you know, masters of the craft and, and master whatever story they're trying to tell, but they're not there yet. They're students. They're not, they're not novelists yet. Um, but this is instead of competing with each other to get there, um, there's no way this story could be told without all of them. They each see one piece of it. Um, so even though they aren't yet ready to master their individual stories together, they can, they can tell this story that is happening under their noses they, that they get pieces of um, together and they can master the story as a group, even if they'll never master that kind of drawer novel they all have. Yeah, it really also brings the reader in, I think, in this way where we're also like looking hungrily at talented Jimmy and beautiful Hannah and, and crazy Leslie. Like <laughs> where anyone who's been in a class where someone else was clearly more talented than you or like more enigmatic or more charming, then um, you can, you immediately go into that perspective and it brings you in in this way that I think is um, propulsive. Yeah. Not a slow burn. Um, <laughs> it does burn, though. But so um, that said, is there anyone anyone in that chorus that you liked writing more? <laughs> I love the character of Leslie so much. So she is just a real person whose name is Leslie. Um, and she's the most interesting person I have ever met in my entire life. She was a publicist at Henry Holt, where I'm a senior editor. Uh, and she was, you know, the, this incredible publicist. She would, she would get, she would take a small literary novel um, and get it in, like, People magazine or, like, the most anticipated list in Entertainment Weekly. And you'd be like, how did you get Entertainment Weekly to be, like, Jonathan Franzen and this, like, short story writer no one's ever heard of. <laughs> She'd be like, that's my business. Like, don't worry about it. She was, like, also, like, kind of mean, but in a way that I loved um, she, so she was a publicist and I was an editor. I could like tell Leslie stories all day long. I won't. I'll just tell you this one other detail about her. Uh, and so my boss was the editor in chief, but also like everybody's boss. And Leslie would be like, hey, you. I'd be like, what? Like, I'm working. What? She'd be like, come watch Broad City in my office. And like, you don't <laughs> say no to Leslie. So, all right, I guess I'll watch Broad City with Leslie in her office. This was when it was like a web series. This wasn't even like broad you know this was like she once it got on comedy central she was like over it she was at passe um so jillian our boss would be meeting with like very important authors and she would literally be like jillian can you please keep it down we're watching something in my office i'd be like oh 
like, you are so terrifying. But also, like, when I told her I was pregnant, she, like, wept. She was so moved. I was like, we're not that close. Like, what's happening right now? So she just kind of, like, kept you on your toes in a way that was really beautiful. And we were, we were in my backyard having a bottle of wine one day. I was like, Leslie, I'm going to write a book about you one day. And she's like, do it. I'll sue you. I'll get rich. <laughs> I was like, challenge accepted. Um, so I wrote this book, kind of about her. Her name is Leslie in the book. And I was always like, I knew Leslie wasn't really going to sue me. But I was also like, I wonder what Leslie's going to say when she reads this book. And so she's like my consultant for everything in life. So I send her the jacket when they send me the jacket. You know, we're like talking about the book. So she gets her hand on a galley and she just emails me out of the boat. And she's like, I fucking love your book. And I can't wait to see what I'm going to do next. And I <laughs> fully knew it was about her. She's out there. Yeah. Um, she moved from New York to Cleveland to like get into the like legalization of marijuana game. She's a publicist for like a marijuana farm out there now. It's very um, She's coming to the Columbus reading. I don't know. We'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. Does she write erotica? <laughs> Like Leslie and No, Hare. she doesn't write at all. Oh, okay. Um, but so it's not, I mean, there are a lot of things. Like none of the actual biographical details are true. Yeah. Like Leslie has all kinds of weird backstory in there. Um, it's just the spirit of yeah. Leslie. And also that writing of the name thing. So we had these very formal marketing meetings and it was like my second day and she like takes the very formal marketing agenda and starts writing my name on it with like all these balloons. And I was like... I was like, we're going to get in trouble. Like, I, I'm like a Catholic schoolgirl, so I'm always, like, afraid the nuns are going to yell at me. I'm like, what are you doing? She, like, rips it out dramatically and slides it to me. I was like, oh, what's happening right now? Are you going to kill me later? Um, so, like, that is taken from that marketing meeting. I mean, Leslie's the hero of the story. So she's, she's still my favorite yeah. person. I see her, like, once every two years. Yeah. I love everyone here, but Leslie's my favorite person. Yeah. <laughs> um. I just wanted to read a section that I love um, for, you know, because, because I can. Um, <laughs> so this is describing Jimmy's writing, I think. Yeah. It wasn't just that the rhythm and flow of the language felt as natural and effortless as waves breaking on sand, or that each word he chose was just the right amount, fresh, unexpected, but not so strange that you couldn't picture or feel right away what he was talking about. It was the moment of realizing some private little thought that had always made you lonely, the kind that seems to fall from empty air on hungover rainy Sundays spent in bed, or in the middle of the night when you wake up running through the list of people you love most, ticking off all the ways they might be in trouble, was actually as common as speeding tickets and spring allergies. He put a finger on all the things that you had spent your entire life discovering were true, but were only just starting to try to find the words for. There was power in writing that good, and authority in being able to feel your way through the world like that, even if it was the only authority he had. It was one of the few great equalizers in life, a kind of authority or ability that doesn't correlate with how attractive you are, or how much money you have, or even how smart you are otherwise. Um, it goes on, but there's, there's, that felt to me like part of the mission of the book is to like, in, in trying to describe what good writing is, you're trying to describe Jimmy and all of them have been like graced with Jimmy's presence for a short amount of time. And he, his talent and his inability to talk about it to them is on, is what the whole book spins around. Um, so it, it means that the whole book has to talk about his writing. It has to talk about 
how it's good and why it's good and why people desire it. And I, I wonder if you had any, um, like qualms about writing about writing, like, you know, we, the introduction said, um, I think a, a lot of times people say, write what you know, but don't, don't make your characters writers or like, don't make your characters like screenwriters. Like, um, but there's something that really works in here about that when you talk about writing. So I wondered if you had problems with that and how you came to... I okay. assumed that I was writing this book just for myself because I was like, no one oh, wants to read a good. book about writers. Um, and I, you know, it was right after Local Girls had come out and there's always that kind of like down period after you publish a book and it's really fun and you like celebrate with your friends and, you know, people say nice things. Some reviewer, Amazon reviewers say mean things. <laughs> but like in general, it feels like a really nice culmination to a thing you've been working on. Uh, and so it was, I started in that kind of like down period when I was like, I just need to be writing right now. Like it doesn't matter that nothing will ever come of this. I just need to like remember why, I'm, why I do this and just like work, you know, this is the idea that wants to come out. So even though it's like fundamentally unpublishable, <laughs> I'm going to do it. Because um, it was just what I wanted to be working on. I wrote it, you know, I was writing under the title The MFA Candidates, which like I sit in publishing meetings every day all the time as a, as a senior editor. I was like, they're definitely not going to let me publish this as the MFA Candidates. And actually my work wife at the time was here, Sarah Bolin. Um, so she and I were work wives with drinking buddies after work. Like we were great at like figuring out an excuse why we needed to put a round of drinks on the corporate card. Like, oh, we lost that book at auction. We need to go have a drink. Or like, oh, that thing Jillian said to you in that meeting was really mean. Let's go out for drinks. Um, so this was like pre-children. So we ended up, you know, the, the corporate card was in heavy rotation. And when we had enough drinks one day that our friend was like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm working on this book that I'm having so much fun working on, but it's about writers. Um, and she was just like, do it. You got to do it. And I felt like if there was one other person sitting in these meetings with me um, who, like, knew how, like, kind of terrible that elevator pitch was that was still, like, you can still transcend this. Just do it. Um, and Sarah also, like, would never say that just to be nice. I say that lovingly. She would always <laughs> try to talk me out of terrible books that I wanted to buy. So I knew if it was a terrible idea, she would have told me. Um, so, yeah, as far as, like, did I have a problem with that, I assumed yeah. – um, that I was writing it just for myself. And then it occurred to me as I, you know, the more I wrote about, the more I wrote, the more I realized I wasn't really writing about writing and books. It was about other things that people could appreciate, if, even if they don't. I mean, maybe couldn't appreciate them if they don't like books, uh, but could appreciate it uh, even if they're not writers themselves. Um, and then, of course, we did change the title, but happily, but, you know, I did sell it to Riverhead with the title, uh, the MFA candidates, but um, that was fairly painless, the yeah. title process. Yeah, no, it is about so much more than writers and writing. It's about, like, it's about, like, seeing and looking and wanting to be something and lo falling in love with people in a non-romantic way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I have more questions, but I want to open it up to this audience, too, if people have questions. Um, yes. <laughs> Yeah, memoir and fiction, yeah. So how do you, I mean, I, obviously people do that. Like, I just watched a Toni Morrison documentary. Did that, like, walk it into Me and Tony, you know? <laughs> 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 
I don't think it makes me nicer when I'm giving notes because I love getting like not mean notes from editors, but like I like to be edited. You know, there are writers who want to be edited and writers who don't want to be edited. And if I get a late edit from someone, I'm like, oh, well, look who's not doing their job. You know, like my editor on this is a brilliant editor. We have the same editor I've ever had. Um, brilliant editor. But you know, like I started doing like essays for places and stuff and different people have different heft to their um, edits and I like a hearty edit, you know. Um, so I'm definitely not a nice, I'm not a nicer editor. I'll like give, you know, I'll give a real edit. Um, but I do think that it makes me more of a mama bear when it comes to publication because it does, it is shocking how vulnerable making it can be to have your, your work in the world even if it's not at all autobiographical, you know, like if I wasn't also a writer, I'd be like, oh, yeah, a one-star review on Amazon. They're sociopaths writing from their parents' basement. Like, move on. But when it's your book, you're like, oh, my God, I failed, you know? Uh, and, I, and I get that, and so I feel like I'm a good mama bear to my writers. Um, but I think it also makes me a little bit more discerning in what I will take on. Like, I have to really love a novel to, to take it on. I think that's partly just because fiction is so hard. Like, the fiction marketplace is so... Um, it's tough, you know, like books that are critically acclaimed and award-winning and win all these big awards will sell like an amount of copies, a number of copies that would like make you weep. Um, so you've got to do it because you love, you know, you got to do it. You got to really love something to buy it. And I'm also just like, this means I'm going to not be working on this. And, you know, like I just, I need to, it needs to feel as important to me as something I'm writing. Which sometimes that's easy. Sometimes I'm like, ugh, this thing I'm writing is crap. Yes, like this is better. I'd rather work on this. Um, but, you know, i got to really love it, I think. So you have like three jobs. You're like, you have two kids, you're a writer, <laughs> and you're a full-time editor. Yes. How does, what does writing then look like for you? Like that practice. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think that I always say, if I'm writing on something that I think has legs and that I'm excited about, uh -huh. like, I will cancel on almost anybody okay. except for maybe my mom um, just because I never hear the end of it. Um, <laughs> you know, just I, if I'm in it and I'm passionate about it, like, I will stay up late into the night even if I have to get up early. I will, you know, cancel plans. I will whatever. But if I don't have something I'm excited about, I would never sit in front of a blinking cursor. You know what I mean? Right. So it's just kind of like when you have something you're excited about, you just you do it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I, I did a lot of the revision on this book when I, on my maternity leave for my first, you know, baby Louie. Um, and it was just, you know, it was like, I, I was, I just, it was time to do it, you yeah. know, and it just worked out. I mean, sometimes it's like scraps on your phone and scribbles on napkins. And then you, you do have to find the time to like cobble it all together. Yeah. Um, and like, you know polish it but as far as like the the broader strokes thinking I think that I'm never not working on on whatever I'm working on if I really love it yeah that's probably good I mean it makes you only work on things that you really love yeah. and you're not just writing something that is like yeah oh, I should write something <laughs> yeah um oh other questions That's a really good question. I, it's funny because I knew that it was going to be like in the communal we and that, you know, various characters were going to pop out. It's kind of like a Greek chorus with solos is how I, I figured out how to talk about the way it's narrated. So I knew it was going to be a Greek chorus and then I knew what, you know, which pieces were going to be there for individuals to pop out and tell. 
Um, but it, that was kind of the part that took a long time is to figure out like which character was gonna, you know, just kind of putting the structure together with the, the plot and like which story each of them are gonna tell. And at first it was just kind of like, I would come up with a name and be like, okay, this guy's gonna do it. And then by the end I felt really, <clears throat> excuse me, close to each of the characters and like I knew them and they were real people. But that took a lot of drafts, I'd say. I love Tanner and <coughs> Melissa. <laughs> this like, I don't know how to describe it. First of all, I love that anyone's <coughs> named Tanner is funny to me. But the fact that they like have this lo love affair that they think is secret over the course of the, these years they're together and then marry other people and have these other lives at home and are tortured. It just felt so MFA. Yeah. It was appropriately annoying. Um, yeah. Um, other questions? Someone in the back had a question. So I would say the third, the th not I would say, I didn't invent third person narration. I'm like, what I think of as third person narration. Um, just, you know, someone who is not in the story. It's a, um, someone who's not at all involved, just giving you the gods, you know, whether you believe in God or not, like this is what actually happened. This is like bird's eye view, God's eye view. Like these are the facts. It's like the most reliable narration. Um, and it's no one person telling it. It's just, you know, the all powerful you know, God of the book. Um, and then the we, the communal we is just um, multiple characters telling you the story together. Right? We, he, yeah, he and she versus we. Like, he went and picked up the book, or we went to the library. <laughs> yeah, and also, yeah, so I would say third-person narration is infallible. You know, they're you're... You know, writers can be tricky, so maybe they're telling you something as fact, and then you later learn that it wasn't quite factual. Um, but if if it's we, or if it's first person singular, you're getting one person, uh, one person's take on the story. Or if it's a group of people, it's a little bit less reliable because they're only telling you what they know. Yeah, there was a magazine that talked about your book that got it wrong. Did you see that? No. I feel like it was like L or some, something. <laughs> and they had a little blurb about your book, and they're like, it's told in the collect in the collective third person or something, and I was like, should I write a letter to the editor? Like, how does this editor not know what this perspective is? But it is. I never thought, like, it is. If you don't know points of view, you never think about it. Like, of course that's confusing. Yeah. It's hard to explain. I was like, oh, God, I'm glad she didn't ask me that because I don't know how it, you know, been taught in a long time. Um, I always like to ask, what, or, um, what got, like, cut from this book that you remember fondly <laughs> so there actually weren't a lot of cuts because as my agent always says she's like you just write down the bones of the story like I send it to her once I'm like there's a beginning a middle and an end she's like I always have she's she had this great beautiful lush garden um metaphor where she was like every writer has this like wild garden that I have to prune and she's like you need some seeds in your garden lady like we need you know like I, I just like say what happened and she's like I want more here more there so usually when I send my first draft to Monica my agent it's you know 150 pages I'm like this will be a novella um and then it usually ends up coming out at like 300 pages oh. and you know she'll be like the story's all here but I wanted to know more here and there and there um Laura did a lot of cutting on the line you know I think 
I'm of the school of thought when it comes to, to the line-by-line -line stuff that the fewer words you, you can use, the better, uh, the more direct, the more simple. So Laura would take like three words out of every sentence, but there wasn't yeah. a lot of like cutting passages. Yeah. Um, we did, the very last thing we did before we put it into production was we had like a seven email back and forth about whether the cats in the book should stay or go. And oh. I wrote her like a 4,000 word email on why the cat should stay. <laughs> Um, and it was not at all contentious because, you know, her edits have been brilliant. We just both really, you know, we were both ready to get, get in and talk, <laughs> talk about the cats. It was really productive and beautiful and um, what I think editors should do. Um, but they, they stayed. Yeah. Um, that's really funny. Um, other questions? We have a couple more minutes, but yeah. That's a hard question, but a good one. Um, I think it's, uh, I had never, I kind of walked onto Bennington's campus, and it was like a church. It was like people were there to worship at the altar of good writing, and people just spoke in these hushed, precious tones about people who had sold like 7,000 copies. And I was like, wow, like, this is, this, you, I'm so glad that this place exists to appreciate, like, yeah. great art that never quite did. Maybe it will make the canon. These people are still alive. You know, who knows how people's work will play <laughs> out. Um, but I thought it was so beautiful because, you know, I had, I had done English, I had, I had studied English Lit in undergrad, but that's all people who lived, like, hundreds of years ago. And it just felt, like, very of the moment. Um, people writing things and people just eating it up and, and really appreciating it in a way that I had not seen it working in publishing. Um, and it was kind of like, what drives this? Like, where does this love come from? Like, what are we getting out of this? Like, what is it in our souls that is, like, needing this? Um, and why do we all, you know, writing is kind of, it's a one, it's a really, if you don't enjoy the writing process, like, don't do it anymore because the publishing process is, is not that fun sometimes. Um, and so I was kind of like, why do we write when we all know how, you know, how bleak sometimes a fiction market can be? It's, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. If you want to write a novel, write a novel. <laughs> a lot of books work too. Um, <laughs> but I was kind of like, why do we do this? Uh, and so that's kind of what I was exploring. Like, what is it that you can't get anywhere else? that you are getting from books and contemporary fiction and what am I getting, you know, I'm, if it's a hopeless pursuit, I'm really screwed because I'm at it at both ends, you know, I'm like publishing it and writing it and, um, and so it's like, why, why am I here? Why am I worshiping at this altar and what am I getting out of it? Um, so that was, I don't know if I've answered those questions, but that's what I wanted to answer. Well, it's a lot of work for, for a not get rich quick scheme yes. so but I feel like you in like the section I read for me that was like the one of the answers in the books is like oh they love it because they have been able like they've been able to try to describe something they knew was true but don't have the words for and but yeah Sarah do you have a question <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> It's actually great. It was really well-timed because I always tell my writers, whatever you do, be working on something new when your book comes out because you're not going to have any control over, like, when reviews hit or what people are saying or, like, how mean the Amazon reviewers are. But the only thing – actually, the Amazon reviewers have not been that mean this time. I don't know. <laughs> last time it was just that my very first review was a one-star review. Oh, 
by a woman named Kathy with an I. <laughs> and she literally was like, this is the worst book I've ever oh. read. <laughs> and it was like four months before the book came out. And I like went down her Amazon review history. She had said a lot of books were the worst books she had ever read. <laughs> so I was like, Kathy with an I, I'm on to you. They can't all be the worst. And then she'd given like five star reviews to like the tuna flavored cat treats that she just bought. <laughs> and it just, Ben and I had a really fun night where we just like went really deep down her like Amazon review history. I'm going to write a short story about Kathy one day. I'm not ready yet, but one day I will be. Um, but, I, so I always tell my own writers, like, be working on something else. Um, so, like, three months ago, I did start working on something that I'm really excited about. And it's funny because it's weird to talk about this book now because I'm kind of like, oh, I want to be talking about my new book, even though I don't really know what it's about. Yeah. Um, but it's, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but I am working on something new I'm excited about. <laughs> nice. Good. Well, we look forward to it. Yay. Um, buy a book. Buy a book for your friend who <laughs> likes books, if you already own one. Um, this has been really great. Thank you for coming Thank you. to talk Thank to you us. Thank you for yeah. the brilliant questions. And you're going to sign books yeah, um, yeah. up here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.